Part 3. Methamphetamines Meth was, and is, the most fantastic drug in the world. That night I played my guitar until my fingers bled. I had tried cocaine before, but coke wears off quickly. When compared with meth, it wears off immediately. Off one suspiciously cheap hit of meth, I was wired for nearly eight hours. My first thought when it did start to wear off the next day was that I needed to get more. I started thinking about all the things I could accomplish on meth. The commoners drink their coffee in the morning, giving them a small pick-a-me-up, but mostly just making them all need to poop. The highly successful in society, I imagined, probably did meth. Ironically, the greatest blessing in my life at that time was that I wasn't surrounded by the highly successful in society. Instead, I was around a bunch of super sketchy meth heads. I saw where that life was likely to lead, and I was in no way interested. I can see how people get caught up chasing that high. I was the perfect candidate for getting addicted to meth. I could picture myself sleeping on a stranger's couch for three days straight and realized, as productive as it might make you in the short term, it evens out when your body suddenly shuts down for days at a time. That was the first time drugs scared me. The first time I realized I was heading down a dark path, I was playing with fire continuing to walk that line. Jesse purchased himself some of the cook from the mysterious meth man, and he stopped coming to work altogether. Chuck and I continued mowing the lawns ourselves, and I started considering moving out as the likelihood of Jesse making rent became increasingly less likely. A few weeks later, Chuck and I were finishing up for the day when he told me he was letting me go. He was moving to the coast in a few weeks and would have to give all his clients to someone else. He told me to get a small business license and then gave me a list of all the equipment I should buy. He promised to give all those clients to me if I wanted them. Thus, the Here Comes the Sun Lawn Care Company was born, and I was a boss. By the first of the month, rent was due, and Jesse was nowhere to be found. He had gotten irreversibly deep into the binge and was barely lucid when he was around. I called you and told you I was in a bad situation. I said I needed to get out of the apartment but never said why exactly. You were there just a few hours later with a truck and didn't ask any questions. I could always count on you for that. While I think it would have been better to talk about why I lived in a meth house, it was nice knowing I could always turn to you for help whenever I needed it. I didn't have to worry about getting in trouble or being threatened with rehab. We drove to Century 21 to see if we could get me off the lease, and it turned out Jesse had never officially signed off for me to be added to the lease in the first place. I was free to leave without any repercussions. I paid half that month's rent anyway, and then we bounced. You helped me get situated in a new apartment across town, and then you went back home. Again, no questions asked. I went from a dirty old storage shed to my very own apartment and the owner of a small business. My life continued to improve, and I felt like a contributing member of society. I could hire my friends to work, and I had enough money for plenty of booze. My depression was pretty well managed as things were going relatively well but my depression was predictably cyclical, and I'd soon be on the downside again. I remember getting the opportunity to paint an entire apartment complex. I had no idea how long the job would take to complete or what to charge them. The quote I gave was probably lower than any other bid they heard, so they were happy to offer me the contract. Every time I took a job where I was likely to eat the cost of my mistakes, I'd justify it as an opportunity to gain experience, which I figured had value. I picked up several gallons of light blue paint and rented a paint sprayer, something I'd never used before. I made quick work of the buildings despite my frustration with the paint sprayer not being as easy to use as I thought it would be. I was exhausted by the end of the day, but I had quoted them appropriately, and it looked like I would make a good amount of money on the job. I packed my things and headed home to crash into my bed for an early night. I was still covered in dry paint, 
but my back and shoulders were aching too much to lift a bar of soap. The next morning I got a call from the furious landlord who wanted to talk to the owner of my company. I silently wished I employed more people than just myself. Apparently, I was supposed to use a shield between the wood I painted and the brick accents that should have been left untouched. When I returned to look at what he was describing over the phone, I saw the light mist of blue that had created an ombre effect on every single unit of the complex, an attention to detail I hadn't yet developed. I could hear my brother's voice laughing at me as I spent another two days, unpaid, brushing paint thinner on the bricks, building by building. I felt stupid for not knowing how to do things the right way instead of being proud of myself for having a willingness to try anyway. There is no better way to learn something than to screw it up so publicly, but I missed the upside of it and fell back into the old patterns of shame and disappointment. That's about the time that psychedelic mushrooms came in. I had started taking field mushrooms several years prior when I was still in high school. They were easy to get since we lived near so many cow pastures. You could head out to the fields early before the sun came up and look for cow patties with shrooms growing out of them. You would flick the cap with your finger, causing the spores to fall onto the patty. Then you could take your shroom, and a new one was likely to grow in its place in a few days. We'd take a shopping bag full of those things home, clean them off, and then boil them in water with enough sugar to hide the strong shit flavor. After boiling for a while, we would drink the tea and wait. Nothing happens for about 30 minutes, and then you're suddenly overwhelmed by a wave of nausea. It feels like you've been poisoned, but it only lasts 5 minutes. Another 10 minutes pass, and you get another wave of 5-minute nausea. This time, when you come out of the queasiness, the room's colors have taken on a new quality. They are not brighter or more saturated. It's hard to explain as it's beyond everyday experience. For example, the solid color of a painted wall will have taken on a subtle raised texture, but when you feel the wall, it still feels perfectly smooth. Another cycle of nausea, and you return to find the surface is now gently swaying like wheat in a field. You're thoroughly poisoned about an hour after drinking the tea and have cycled through several rounds of nausea. Everything in the room is gently bending and twisting, just enough to be noticeable, but not so much that the movement seems unbelievable. When the movements remain believable, it's hard to know what's really happening and what is simply a hallucination. One example that comes to mind is a trip I had back when Hurricane Katrina made landfall in Louisiana. Cities all across the Texas coast were shutting down as it was predicted the hurricane would start heading west. The highways were clogged with people trying to evacuate, and gas stations ran out of gas. The only place open in town was Walmart. My friends and I all decided to take psychedelics and hang out in the toy section during what felt like a pre-apocalyptic event. Those subtle, believable movements made all the toys on the shelf appear battery-operated. It seemed unlikely that all the toys would be moving and playing by themselves, but it still existed in the realm of possibility. That's a fair example of the feeling you get when the first actual phase of the trip kicks in. It's arguably the most fun phase, and it's often why people take shrooms in the first place, but not for me. I was hooked on shrooms for the second phase. The second phase is different for everyone, but it was very introspective for me. The waves of cyclical nausea continue throughout your trip. Each time you start to feel sick, there's a minor panic attack as you question if your brain can handle hallucinating more than you currently are. Somewhere around the midway point of the second phase, you have to start bracing yourself for the increasing peaks of the high. With every wave of nausea, I would close my eyes and breathe slowly until I could adapt to the new level of high, the high plateaus, and then I could open my eyes again and carry on with the night. 
Inevitably, as you're judging your mind's capacity for such things, you start to feel self-conscious about how you must look to others. Once you begin thinking about yourself, the shrooms completely take over. For me, it was always ugly at first. I'd think of my mom and wonder why she didn't want anything to do with me. I would think of my brother and how he always seemed so ashamed of me. He would brag about writing off the people he didn't like. I'd realize he hadn't spoken to me in a long time. Had he written me off, I'd probably deserve it. I'd think of you and about how you were always there to help me, but I would worry that you were disappointed in me for not having a life plan. I'd feel guilty that you always needed to bail me out of stupid situations. But you never had to do that with my brother. Shrooms hyperfocus your thoughts, causing you to delve deeply into any topic that crosses your mind. They grab a thick handful of hair from the back of your head and rub your face in every thought you've tried desperately to ignore. That's the worst part of phase two, but toward the end of phase two, you start to have little epiphanies about yourself. Things become more apparent as you begin to deal with your emotions. It feels like months of therapy ripping through your mind, and, as long as you can survive each round of nausea, you might learn something about yourself. Phase three is when you start to come down and feel like you've had a psychological breakthrough. Like you've touched the hand of God, she has shown you the way toward living a better life, and you feel reborn with a second chance to get it right. Putting that meth pipe away for good and getting out of Jesse's apartment was a phase two epiphany. Shrooms were now in every three-month self-medicating therapy I consistently used to keep my depression at bay. I was in my new apartment for almost a year when my mushroom therapy abruptly stopped working. Part 4. Emo Girls I had been dating a girl named Samantha since I had moved back to town. That should give you an idea of how much she liked me back because she was willing to overlook that I was living in a storage shed. She had been there through all the Jesse drama and was now living with me in the new apartment. She'd even mow a couple of lawns with me here and there. We would do mushrooms together too, and she was cool with doing them at my preferred frequency of every three months. We had graduated from field shroom tea to a higher potency hydroponic mushroom that had been folded into a warm chocolate brownie. The high was cleaner, and the epiphanies were more profound. We were becoming better people together, and we would talk about our big plans of getting real careers and potentially starting a family someday. My friend Hammy was a teacher in Idaho, so Samantha and I started kicking around the idea of moving there. I wanted to get my teaching credential to teach grade school kids, and she wanted to work with animals. I felt like we were headed down a positive path. Samantha was working at a small coffee shop on the north side of campus when she met a new guy friend. I wasn't jealous of him at first. I had more time to skate and play music when she was with him. Before long, she spent more time with him than with me. His name was Devin, and after several months of working together, he invited her to go with him when he moved back to Colorado at the end of the semester. She accepted his offer and brought it up to me one night after dinner. I was spiritually devastated. It solidified the idea that they were screwing around, but it also occurred to me that she would be out of my life entirely. It would be bad enough that she was leaving me for another man, but the thought that we couldn't even remain friends after our split broke my heart. She saw how much her leaving hurt me as I begged her not to go. I'm not entirely sure if that was what she was looking for or if the guilt made her stay, but she didn't leave with him when he left for Colorado. For her, she had seen how much I loved her when I cried for her that night. Alcoholics can be distant and guarded not always showing their true emotions. Maybe she just wanted to see if I did love her, and this had proven it to her. For me, everything had changed between us, and the spiritual bond had been broken. 
She had all but packed her bags to leave me for someone else. Although she always denied it, I assumed she had cheated on me at some point before he left. She stayed to work on our relationship, but I never fully recovered from her threat to leave. I had issues getting close to women after everything I had gone through with my mom. I wasn't trusting of them and was scared to get close. When I did open myself to them, I became utterly vulnerable. When this happened with Samantha, I immediately started looking for a new woman to blunt the pain with a rebound. I found that in a disastrous emo girl named Ren, who could be the perfect distraction. I never cheated on Samantha, but I wasn't there for her emotionally anymore. I had grown cold, and she rarely saw me sober. Eventually, she had had enough and left me. I called Ran the same day, and Samantha had been replaced by the next morning. I hid my feelings for Samantha and drowned out how much I missed her and how much guilt I felt for letting her go with copious amounts of alcohol and cocaine-fueled nights with Ren. My relationship with Ren was doomed from the start. Still, I fought harder to keep that relationship alive than I did with Samantha because if my relationship with Ren didn't work out, it would mean I had made a mistake by letting Samantha go. Ren was a nightmare. Her personality reminded me a lot of my mom. Maybe my fighting so hard for Ren also had some weird Freudian aspect that meant I was secretly fighting for my mom. I don't know. Ren's mother died from cancer when Ren was 10 years old. She saw how much love and care her mother had been given by her family and friends during her treatment. Ren began to associate pain and sickness with being loved. By the time we were dating, she had become a hypochondriac that would fake illness for attention. Early in our relationship, she had been diagnosed with an inoperable brain tumor. We cried together as she described how she didn't want to die alone, and then she asked me to marry her. I told you about it, and we called her father to express our condolences. We also asked him how he felt about me marrying his daughter. He was not only surprised to hear of this inoperable brain tumor but also furious that I would lie about something like that. Ren was seriously a total nightmare, but my mother had also lied about having cancer, and damn it all to Freud, I was going to fix this girl. Ren was also a cutter. Her way of dealing with depression was to make light, superficial scratches on her hips with a knife. The cuts were deep enough to draw blood but wouldn't need medical treatment. They were conveniently hidden under her clothes, and the wound would heal within a few days. Evidently, the cutting released endorphins that gave her a high that helped her cope with depression, not unlike the high I got from a good slam on a skateboard. Maybe I loved skating so much because it hurt so badly. I became interested in cutting and wondered if it would work for me, but I was much too scared to try it. One particularly drama-filled evening with Ren led to her locking herself in the bathroom while I was drunk and alone in the kitchen. She would always hide in the bathroom. I found it infuriating. We would start to argue, and then she'd lock the door and threaten to hurt herself. The first few times, it legitimately scared me because I thought she'd actually try something. Once I learned it was just an act, I stopped checking on her, and I'd give her some space to cool down. As I drunkenly waited for her, the sharp knife on the kitchen counter caught my eye. My depression was at an all-time high, and I had been having thoughts of suicide relatively often. It wasn't the first time I had felt this way. I remember the first time I had suicidal thoughts. It was within the first year of living in Texas. I knew I couldn't talk to you about it, but I thought I might be able to open up to my brother when he came home from school for winter break. I waited until Shannon and I were alone in the car on our way to grab something to eat. I told him I had been thinking about suicide lately, and he was instantaneously furious with me. He told me I was selfish and stupid for even thinking about it, and he promised he'd never forgive me if I ever even tried. I was hurt and scared by his reaction. It wasn't what I expected to hear, and I didn't think he'd be mad at me. It's not as if I was asking him for advice on how to do it or asking for his permission. 
I just wanted to tell someone I was having those thoughts, and I didn't know what to do about it, that I was scared and that I was depressed. I was maybe fishing for attention. I wanted to hear him tell me he loved me and that I'd be missed if I weren't around. I was having thoughts of suicide because I felt stupid and selfish. Telling me I was stupid and selfish for having those thoughts didn't help. I was now there again, having the same feelings in an emo girl's kitchen. Only this time, I was too drunk to think straight, and the knife had somehow gotten into my hands. I recklessly took three quick swipes. They landed a third of the way up my arm, just above the wrist. It wasn't a suicide attempt, but what I was attempting isn't exactly clear. Blood gushed from my arm as the third slash opened to an inch-wide crevice. I panicked and dropped the knife. I tried holding my arm closed, but it did nothing to stop the bleeding as it trickled through my fingers. Ren was the last person I wanted to talk to about it, but I figured Miho was probably home. He lived on the other side of the same apartment complex. I grabbed my jacket and ran there as fast as I could. I was worried I had accidentally just killed myself. Ren heard the door slam, but she waited for ten more minutes in the bathroom, just in case I came back. She eventually peered out the cracked door to see if I had truly left. The room was quiet, so she stepped out of the bathroom that led into her bedroom. She could see the kitchen through the hallway and noticed I had spilled something on the floor. Irritated, she stormed through the house, assuming I had intentionally flooded the kitchen with a drink of some kind. Slowly, as she got closer, she realized that it was my blood and a lot of it. Her fears were confirmed when she saw the unnecessarily sharp knife sitting in a puddle of blood on the floor. There was blood on the cabinets, splattered against the wall, dripping down the front of her refrigerator, and bloody shoe prints creating a long red path through the living room and out her front door. She ran to the door and swung it open, only to find the trail leading down the stairs, across the walkway, and then it disappeared into the grass. I got to Miho's apartment in less than two minutes, and I knocked loudly on his door. His roommate Brian answered and looked pleased when he recognized me. Hey, what's up, D? He asked as the look of happy surprise slowly melted from his face. Noticing his gaze fall to my legs, I too realized for the first time since it had happened that my shirt and pants were soaked in blood, only partially concealed by the blue members-only jacket I was now wearing. My left arm wasn't in the sleeve, and I was holding my wrist inside the jacket with my other hand. Hey man, I had a little accident. Is Miho here? Yeah, man, he's right here. Miho, come here quick. He looked shocked and worried as he stepped aside to let me in. I could tell a part of him didn't want me there. What's wrong? Miho asked as he came to the door. He quickly ushered me into the house and brought me to the back bathroom when he saw me. What the fuck happened to you? I don't know, dude. I was just fucking around, and I cut my arm pretty bad. I think you'll have to sew it back together, man. I said as I took my hand off the wound and showed him the full extent of the injury. A fresh oozing of blood coated the older blood that had already begun to dry. The fuck you mean? So it? You need to go to the hospital. He said with one hand on his head. Everything okay? Brian asked from just outside the bathroom. Mio slammed the door without answering him. Won't it get infected? I don't know what I'm doing. Mio looked stressed. It's fine, just get a sewing needle and some thread. We will boil the needle in water to kill anything left on it. We have to do something, dude. I'm losing a lot of blood. If we go to the ER, they will admit me for suicide watch or something. I was drunk enough to withstand the pain of him sewing my arm, and there was nobody I would trust it to more than Mio. Fuck. Man. Fuck. Okay. Mio left and started heating some water on the stove. He returned a few minutes later. Dude, we don't have a thread. All I have is dental floss. We argued for a few minutes about whether or not dental floss was a good idea and I was just about to suggest we also boil the floss when a knock came at the door. It was Ren. 
I could hear her crying, screaming between sobs, asking Brian if I was there. Miho reassured me he would handle it. I could hear the commotion outside, but I couldn't quite make out what they were saying. Miho eventually calmed her down and sent her back home. He grabbed the needle and floss and met me back in the bathroom. You ready? He asked, looking uncertain but willing to go through with it. I took my hand off the paper towels we had bunched up on the wound and slowly peeled the layers back. The gash was disgusting, but the bleeding had mostly stopped. Only a small trickle of blood ran down my forearm, so we decided to glue it together, and then Miho taped a massive wad of gauze to the site. The laceration bled for three weeks, sometimes just a yellow-orange oozing of semi-clear liquid. You saw my home bandaging in the first week I had it. What happened there? You asked. I was leaning into the window of your truck from the driveway as you were leaving for work. Oh, nothing. I playfully chuckled as I quickly pulled my arm away. You didn't question me any further and just said your goodbyes as you drove away. I sometimes wonder what would have happened if you had pressed the issue. Would I have admitted my depression then? I felt like I had gotten off the hook more than anything. I wasn't in the mood to talk about it anyway, but you had to notice the shame in my eyes as I pulled my arm back. Now with the world crumbling around me, I needed my shroom therapy more than ever. I contacted my street pharmacist who prepared my antidepressants in that warm chocolate brownie and made home deliveries. I wanted to improve my relationship with you. I wanted to be a better brother. I also welcomed any insight into my relationship with my mom. Psychoanalyzing those relationships and my role in them was something I valued in the experience. I didn't want to think about Samantha or Ren, and I didn't want to think about suicide. Unfortunately, shrooms hyperfocus your thoughts, and I couldn't think about anything else. As I rocketed through the first two phases of the trip, I started thinking about every prior shroom session I had and each eye-opening epiphany that resulted. The shrooms reminded me that I hadn't done anything I promised myself. Each major life-altering walk back down the mountain had been treated as a splendid idea that would never be enacted, and the euphoria of hope would fade in a few months. I'd again be back on the living room floor with my eyes closed, bracing for the next epiphany, just as I was now. My brother's voice echoed through the psilocybic loudspeakers, demoralizing me further for being such an epic failure. Then came the guilt for the relationships I had ruined with two innocent women. I had discarded one relationship out of fear of rejection, and the other I had used as a tool to ignore the pain that I was only postponing until this exact moment. I closed my eyes and braced myself as another wave of nausea made my stomach flip. I began the exponential climb toward enlightenment, but the epiphany never came. I just sat with the stark realization that there was nothing left for me to do. There was no bright idea, nothing I could change about myself. I was a terrible person, and because of that, there would be no touching the hand of God today. Then something in my mind snapped. That anxiety of passing through the threshold for being able to handle hallucinogens, and the gradual adaptation to the new high, never broke. The feeling lingered uneasily. I kept my eyes closed, shutting them tighter and tighter. I felt like the guy in the Maxwell cassette tape commercials, being blown away while trying to maintain my seat on the couch, only it wasn't worth it. I imagined my mind as a reservoir, filled to the brim, about to spill over to the other side. That other side, I could tell, was psychosis. I had done the exact amount of drugs one must do to walk up to the line of losing your mind and was now peering over the edge. I knew, for a fact, that if I ever did shrooms again, the floodgates would open, and I'd lose control of self and rational thought. I would abruptly dissociate from my current identity and lose the ability to recognize who the real me was. Several hours later, when even the worst bad trips should have worn off, I was still teetering on the edge of crisis. I became terrified of all mind-altering substances. I stopped smoking weed. I felt even the slightest puff could send me toppling over the edge. 
The only thing that made it feel better was alcohol. Being drunk was my normal. It felt like my baseline. Staying drunk helped me feel in control, easing my newfound anxiety. I was still terrified of any other substances, and I was well aware that mixing any of those with alcohol would only do the job of breaking my brain that much quicker and more feral. I became socially awkward and started to overanalyze everything I would say. I started stumbling over my words as I struggled to find the right ones. Each time it happened, I feared my reservoir had finally spilled over. The internal panic it would cause made finding the words I was searching for nearly impossible, and I would lose my train of thought. This would eventually become another aspect of my social anxiety that I would attempt to quell with more alcohol. My fear of finally losing it got so bad that I couldn't even be around people who were in an altered mental state. I feared they'd say something strange, and my mind would trick itself into thinking I was on a hallucinogen. Via an associative high, I'd shatter the delicate barrier holding my mind on the right side of reality. I had to get away from everyone and everything. I again came running home to you. Getting off drugs was easy because I was terrified of them. Moving away from everyone who was using also helped to eliminate temptation. Unfortunately, I had just turned 21, and I could now buy alcohol anytime I wanted. I started getting alcohol every time I left the house and found my go-to in a fifth of Bacardi that would accompany me to every outing. I was again living under your roof, which meant I had to go back to school. So I began my second attempt at college, now free from drugs.